just one mind. And they weren't confused and they weren't off. They weren't teaching something that wasn't true. It became the word of God. We know that's true. And they were one mind in what was true. And I know everybody's going to say, yeah, that's where we are as a church. But you see, there's all these other people. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Heavenly Father, you are the one worthy of all honor and glory. You are the eternal Father, the one who has brought forth the Son eternally, making you, Lord, the eternal Son. You have always been. That is so far beyond what we can imagine. Uh, Totally out of comprehension, and yet we know it to be true. You stood in a burning bush, and Moses said to you, so when I go back, They're going to ask me, what's his name? And you said, I am. I am that I am. Tell them I am sent me unto you. What could he do but get on his face? You know, there we are. We can say I am because you created us. You say I am in the purest, most complete sense of that term. And it's, it's just puts us in awe and will for all eternity. We will never be I am. We'll never approach I am. We who are the righteous by your grace will simply acknowledge and know that we live because you created us and because you redeemed us. That will be true for every last one of us and always will. And for that, we give you the honor and the praise and the glory. May all the words of this message be pleasing in your sight. I ask, Lord, that you make that happen. In Jesus' name, amen. So last time in episode 68, 67, it was the great division. I'm sorry, the, the great deception last, last time. Um, this one, episode 68, is defiant divisions. And you might ask, you know, why defiant divisions? And I hate the thought of this. <laughs> I really do. But uh, spiritual leaders are responsible for what's taught, what's believed, what's uh, propagated among the people. And so when people are in the Word, or they should be all the time, because they're the one representing what God is saying, and that can only be known as one studies properly the Word of God. And in that, a person becomes responsible for what they're reading. I mean, if they're a child of God, if they've been given the Holy Spirit of God, by which Paul declares and makes very clear in the first and second chapters of the letter to the, the, for the Corinthians, uh, that a person understands the Spirit of God by... The, uh, the Spirit of God. And that Spirit of God, when is given, I mean, there's an access to the truth which then makes us responsible. We're responsible according to what we know. The more light, the more accountability. So therefore, in all the generations from the war, when the world began, there's greater accountability. Great accountability before the flood, accountability after the flood, after the law, after Christ on the cross, and in the final millennial reign of Christ, just greater and greater and greater light and understanding of the truth. And so woe unto us who know and walk in the truth and to our accountability. So the fact of this message, which is about division in the church, Uh, it becomes very clear that God's word is very, very clear in the way it states, by Jesus, no division. We'll be looking at that in just a minute. 
So the problem with divisions, the problem with divisions in the church is not because of the world. You know, the world is going to hell because it's evil and because it did not receive the grace of God to be saved. And I'm talking about unsaved people, whether they're religious or not, whether they claim the name of Jesus or not. A person is either a regenerate, born-again believer, touched by the grace of God or not. Many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name? Christ is going to say, I never knew you. The church receives eternal life because of the grace of God. Eternal life cannot be earned. It certainly cannot be deserved or wouldn't be deserved. The church has parasites living under its umbrella, and those are called cults and isms. Cults and isms, but they claim to know Christ. And people even in saved saved denominations, saved churches where the gospel is preached and people really are saved there and there's people within those walls that are not true Christians. They should be seen for what they are and in that they they should be um, brought into the light of, you know, the light that they're living in. And But that's the responsibility of individual churches. As regenerate people, we do not expect anything less from the religious world. It's been cutting down trees and calling them idols, gods for millennia. It devises philosophies and scientific theorems that either deny God's existence or distort the reality of his being. False religions corrupt the misguided and teach them the wrong way to heaven and in so doing lead them to hell. Again, just read Matthew chapter 7. Jesus preached the greatest sermon ever and worldly religious people pay no attention to it. He concluded his sermon that declared truth about authentic Christianity in the way that false converts and false teachers distort Jesus' teaching this way. Matthew chapter 7, which I just made note of, says very clearly, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every truth that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire so that you will know them by their fruits. I mean, this is right out of a sermon telling us what the demands of God are for salvation. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, it's not just verbiage. It's not just words. It's actually the fruit that people bear. But the one who, Jesus said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does, does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons in your name, perform many miracles, and then I will declare to you, to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And it did not fall, for it had been founded on a rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the flood came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and its collapse was great. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You know, it's one thing to read the scriptures, whether it's Old Testament law 
or New Testament epistles, whatever part it might be, and to speak and say, thus says the Lord. It's another thing to speak as Jesus did and make it an authoritative statement. You've heard it said, but I say to you, whoa, you've heard it said. You, you, you know what, what's written, written in what we call God's word, but I say to you, Jesus was speaking as God. And they got it. They understood exactly the clear, undeniable, and threatening reality is that Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. This is, the kingdom of God is about doing. It's about living out the reality it's about being consistent with our life. Did we hear what Jesus said correctly? He does not leave much room for easy believism, where a person says, I believe in Jesus, and then there's no sincere, authentic change in a person's character or behavior. Transformation was the biblical mark of a Christian until false prophets started to say otherwise. I had a man sitting in my office this week, and I, we started talking about hypocrisy. And he, he, you know, when he was a kid, his parents were in church and they were going to church, and but their life wasn't living up to it. And then they started going to the Church of God Alive, I think he was the name of this. I wasn't familiar with it. And he said, you know, in the same thing. You know, they're saying one thing, but their lives aren't measuring up. This is a person who does not profess to be a Christian. Neither does Jesus leave much room for license in the name of liberty. We are free to live as we choose, say the licentious. Only quote, end quote, licentious Christian does not degrade, degrade rules. He simply calls Christians to live as liberated and ruin our calling by doing so. Christians today and for centuries have been telling one another division is acceptable. That's the point here. Is division acceptable? Is a person who advocates division living? I'm not calling anyone unsaved. I'm not saying people who are in church who just cling to their divisiveness and to the division to which they belong. I'm not saying they're necessarily unbelievers. I'm saying we're standing on the edge of looking like we're, un we're not believers. And there certainly are people who are unbelievers. I'm just not looking at any particular person saying they're unsaved. That would be wrong. I can't judge anyone's heart. All of anyone who's listening to this, I mean, you can't even judge your own heart. I, I can't judge my heart. I can judge fruit in my life. I can judge what I, what I know and whether or not I'm living up to it. But I, I really can't know. You know, the heart is deceitful above all things, the scripture says, and, and desperately wicked. Who can know it is the question and the answer? Nobody. Nobody. What I want to look at is I want to look at unity first. So we're going to start with Psalm 133 and verse 1. That's verse 1 through 3. Psalm 133. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Isn't that something? It's, I mean, it's good. It's, it's pleasant. It's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard. Even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes. Make no mistake, this is the oil that symbolizes the Holy Spirit falling down upon our head with anointing, anointing power and presence of God, the power to, to do his high priestly duties or to present the word, to speak to God for the people, to speak to the people for God. It's like oil upon the head. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing Life forever. Jesus, uh, the, the writer here in Psalm 133, is making a, an, a wonderful statement about the, 
the unifying effect of the Holy Spirit that from the top of the head to the ends of the robes, it's just Spirit-filled. And that's every part of the body. And make no mistake, the body is the body of Christ, the church. Ephesians 4, 1-6, through Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just also as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now look, I mean, is it, is, am I mistaking something here? Am I, am I not being clear in my understanding that the word one is used over and over again? And one, not divided about specific elements of what's being taught. It's not saying that. It's saying there's one spirit. So there's not one spirit for the Baptists and one for the Charismatics. There's not one understanding of these things. Showing tolerance for one another in love does not mean division and tolerating division. That's not what's being said here. Because then he says, there's one body. There's one spirit. There's one hope. One calling. One Lord. One faith. One faith. Now faith is only as good as its object. So what you're believing in, the teaching, the thought, the idea, one. It's just one of those. So somebody's in and somebody's out. Every single time. Paul is very expressive in the way he teaches unity. In reality, the church is one and it will be one in experience if the people who make up the church have the same passion for oneness that Jesus does by grace and the Spirit. Just one. But the question we have to ask ourselves, I mean, whose fault is it if the church is divided? If we're not experiencing the Holy Spirit and grace in our lives in order to make the church one. Is that God's fault? Is that just, you know, we're just not perfect people? Well, let's consider this. Paul continues to say that Christ supplies all types of people for the building up of the church. And then he tells us in verses 13 to 15, until we all attain the unity of the faith to the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, here's the key, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by, wa by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him. If we grow up in all aspects into him, aren't we going to be one? Is God confused? Is God divided? I mean, if we're growing up, oh, we're all, we're, everybody's growing up, right? Every denomination, every split, every little piece of the pie is going to say, that's the key. We want to grow up. We want to mature. Oh, we have mature people here. Or we're working on it. But if we're not growing together, are we really maturing? All the pieces, we have all the pieces. God supplies what's necessary to mature. And then he says we're no longer to be children tossed here and there. So if everybody has a different doctrine, you're going to tell me that we're not being tossed? I mean, is that really possible? Now, if we walk in the flesh and not in the spirit, of course, there will be tossing, there will be immaturity, and here's the key, there will be divisions. This is why we should pray for revival, because the church was born out in Pentecost out of revival. And when we, revival fell, the people were all in one mind, one heart. I mean, the, in Jerusalem, it says they were all one mind. When they had the, the council, and they, you know what's going on, Jews, Gentiles, you know, what do we need to be focused on and what's really important, and they were all of one mind. The whole church, just one mind. And they weren't confused, and they weren't off. They weren't teaching something that wasn't true. It became the word of God. We know that's true. And they were one mind in what was true. 
I know everybody's going to say, yeah, that's where we are as a church. But you see, there's all these other people. Okay. Philippians chapter 2 tells us, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, and remember, this is in the Greek, this is if and there is, if and there is, if any affection and there is, and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. That is not let's agree to disagree. That's not a majority rule. That's not anything in a worldly way. It is be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Like, how many ways does he have to say this before we realize we need to be on the same page? Verse 3, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. This isn't about being proud. This isn't about taking a stand when we're not standing together. This is about standing together, but with humility. Consider one another as more important. That doesn't mean better. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean more important in the sense that this is an honorable person. This is a man of achievement. This is no, this isn't that. This is more important. Like the way you care for yourself, you're going to care for another person. Like the way you care for what we think in our own head, in our own personal mind, we're going to care what they think, what their interests are, you know, what their needs are. Do not, and he goes on and he says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This isn't about denominational divisions. This is about unity and love. When we're, we're one, now, okay, let's care. We're one. Care for the other person like you care for yourself. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also in, was in Christ. What was that? Well, he went to the cross. He went to a, a suffering death like no one could even comprehend because he paid the price in hell for our sins forever. An ever, an ever and ever penalty that only an eternal God could do. And he did. He put him, himself last and us first. W- was he less than us? Less important than us? I mean, you're talking about God now. And he's dying for us. Who's more important? This isn't about importance. This is not about who's more important. This is about loving other people like you love yourself. In his case, he was more important. In our case... We're not more important than one another. We're just people. We're all the same. We're all saved by grace. How does all this unity take place? Let's let's go there now. I'm talking about unity. How does it happen? Well, first by walking in the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. First by walking in the Spirit and being filled in the Spirit. You go to Ephesians chapter 5 and you want to figure out about what the Bible's saying about be filled with the Spirit. But equally important, 2 John 1, 1 says this, the elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. And not I only, but also all who know the truth. Because the truth, which remains in us, and will be in a, with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. So four times John uses the word truth and two times he uses the word love. Now that's not a a big, big issue, but here's the thing. There can be no love without truth. I mean, he's talking about whom I I love in truth. And he's saying all who know the truth and the, the truth will be with us be with us. And, and the Father in truth and love. Truth, 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 truth. And the end result of truth is love. Those are my words, not his. But four times John uses the word truth and two times he uses love. There can be no love without truth because love cannot exist within lies. That's the point. We either 
love Christ in truth or we don't love Him at all. What is true of how we love Christ is how we must love one another. Let's not miss this. So in 3 John, so we got 2 John, now 3 John begins this way. The elder to the beloved Gaius whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health. You, just as your soul prospers. For I was overjoyed when brothers came and testified of your truth. That is how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. No greater joy. His focus is clearly on the importance of truth, which he uses four times and with no mention of love in 3 John. No greater joy. What's the greatest joy? Well, you would think the greatest joy because the greatest of these is love, right? The greatest would be love, would be love but no. No, he has no greater joy than his children walk in the truth because apart from truth, you can't really love. You can't love a person without truth. Now, maybe you don't believe that. Maybe people don't believe that in the church today. Maybe, you know, doctrine just divides people. We've been told that for 60 years, ever since ecumenism, ever since the World Council of Churches, ever since this desire, you know, for unity. And so the way you do it is you put aside truth. Yeah, that's not the biblical way. But what about division? Let's look at division. Let us see what God says from Zechariah eleven thirteen to 17. This is from Zechariah. The quote used in uh, Matthew about this, what I'm about to read is from Jeremiah, but this, the idea is the same, whether it's Jeremiah or Zechariah, and it's almost word for word. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price of, at which I was valued by them. That, that, that it's going to come clearer right now. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. This is a prophecy about Jesus being betrayed by Judas, one of his disciples. Then I cut in pieces my second staff. He had two staffs, and he cut this one in pieces, and the name of the staff is Unity. Then I cut in pieces my second staff, Unity to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Now, this is incredible. This is what the Lord says. It says, then the Lord said, the Lord said to me, take again for yourself the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I'm going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing, seek the scattered, heal the broken, or sustain the one standing, but will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hoofs. What did Jesus say? Beware of false shepherds. Beware of false teachers. Why? Because this is what they do. They devour. And then he goes on in 17, Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. You see, the good shepherd, he was sold for 30 pieces. And so God gives him over. A sword will be on his arm, And on his right eye, his arm will totally be withered. So, of course, it's cut off. And his right eye will be blinded. Will be blind. This is what's happening because he's being sold and the sheep will be given over to false shepherds. What is God saying through the prophet Zechariah? The Lord Jehovah is speaking and says to us, he was sold for 30 pieces of silver. And with sarcasm, he tells us it is a magnificent price. On the heels of God being sold for nothing, he says, then I cut in pieces my second staff. So unity is just destroyed when false shepherds are doing their thing. The Lord said to Zachary, take again for yourself the equipment of a foolish shepherd. I mean, this is just, it's sad. The whole thing is so sad. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, Jesus said, so that they may be one just as we are 
This is Jesus. Moments from Gethsemane. From being lashed the skin off his body, nailed to a wooden cross. The pain physically was, I mean, just indescribable. And that's just a physical pain which, pain which pales into almost nothing compared to what he suffered in his soul. That's why he was bleeding, as there were great drops of blood falling to the ground. And his statements just before that are, the glory which you have given me, I also have given to them, so that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so the world may know that you sent me. This is about unity between Father and Son and that unity being imparted to the church as a whole, not just certain parts. Now to understand the weight of what Jesus is saying in his high priestly prayer, I'm going to use the words of E.M. Bounds, that great writer on prayer, who wrote uh, eight volumes that are uh, uh, definitely um, in moved by the Holy Spirit. You can get the complete works of E.M. Bounds on prayer. This one is the reality of prayer, from the book The Reality of Prayer. And this is what he says. Notice how intently his heart, that's Jesus, was set on this unity. What shameful history, what bloody annals has this lack of unity written for God's church. These walls of separation, these alienations, these split circles of God's family, these warring tribes of men, and these these destruction uh, on both sides of a family, that kind of a war. He looks ahead and sees how Christ is torn, how he bleeds and suffers afresh in all these sad things of the future. The unity of God's people was to be the heritage of God's glory promised to them. Division and strife are the devil's bequest to the church. A heritage of failure, weakness, shame, and woe. The oneness of God's people was to be the one credential to the world of the divinity of Christ's mission on earth. Let us ask in all candor, are we praying for this unity as Christ prayed for it? Are we seeking the peace the welfare, the glory, the might, and the divinity of God's cause as it is found in the unity of God's people? That should be a stirring question. Going back again, note please, how he puts himself as the opponent and the pattern of this unworldliness which he prays may possess his disciples. He sends them into the world just as his Father sent him into the world. He expects them to be and do just as he was and as he did for his father. He sought the sanctification of his disciples that they might be wholly devoted to God and purified from all sin. He desired in them a holy life and a holy work for God. He devoted himself to death in order that they might be devoted in life to God. For a true sanctification, he prayed. A real, whole, and thorough sanctification embracing soul, body, and mind. For time and eternity. With him, the word itself had much to do with their true sanctification. And then he quotes again this verse from John chapter 17 in Jesus' prayer. Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. End quote. You know, if, uh, if, you like, if you're like me, and take the words of E.M. Bounds to be incredibly pregnant with the fire of God's passion for righteousness, and in this case, lived out through a complete unity with the authentic body of Christ, his church. I mean, if if that's Christ's passion, which it most certainly was, well, let's, let's think about what Christ said about unity. 
what Christ prayed concerning unity and where the, the church is today. We, we just considered what he said the church would be today. This was uh, 150 years ago, talking about the imbalance, talking about what the church was had become by his day. And it certainly hasn't gotten better. Certainly hasn't gotten better since ecumenism, since the World Council of Churches. If anything, it's worse. Today we're told that unity needs only to be on core issues. I'm talking about in evangelical churches. I'm talking about where people profess to be Christ, and there's a, a certain amount of the gospel that's proclaimed there. And I'm depending from church to church, you know, what gospel is preached and, you know, what, what slants it has and what, what issues are prop, being propagated. But uh, the, the core issues, we're told, even the best of churches, not all, but most, core issues is what's matter, and then there are secondary issues, and those don't matter so much. I mean, are you feeling lukewarm yet? I mean, how about apathetic or compromised? From what has been said thus far, do you think Christ is all right with denominational walls? Should we throw out any discussion about things that cause us to be divided, or should we pray and fast until we die to the lies we've been told and sold and cry out to God until we are all agreed? Now, I know one church can't unify the, the, a world of churches. I know that all of this is kind of beyond what, who we are and what we can accomplish. I'm not asking for the people who are hearing this you know, to fix it all. That's not going to happen. I realize that. What I want us to do, I want us to take it serious enough so that when Christ comes back, you know, we, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, at least for the people of the coming generations. You know, that we, we start to hope and pray that this thing gets fixed. Not, you know, Baptists and Pentecostals and Charismatics and oh, Anglicans and add on ad infinitum. Just the divisions is incredible. And oh, you know, we were all the same mind when we get together in a big group, but we can't worship together in the same church because there's too many differences. I mean, you know, one's going to baptize and submerse and one's going to sprinkle and, you know, on and on and on. All these differences. And all these differences divide to the point that we can't worship in the same building. I'm going to read Jesus as he prayed this prayer from John chapter 17. And this is what I want you to focus on. I want you to just think to yourself, and we're going to bring this to a close as we, with this chapter. And I want to, I'm going to try to emphasize the oneness between Father and Son, and between Father, Son, and His bride-to-be, His church. So beginning in verse 1, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up His eyes to heaven. He's not bowed with His eyes closed. This is Almighty God looking with who He is up to heaven to where the Father is seated on the throne. And He's going to be on the right hand of that throne. So that we can see who he is. Because God is spirit and you can't see God. And he's everywhere present and all of that. But this is son incarnate. Speaking to the father in heaven. And just let's just understand what's being said here. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. That the son may glorify you. See how it's going both ways? Keep that in mind as we read through even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Unity, 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 knowing intimately. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have revealed your name to the men whom you gave me. 
out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. (laughs) And all things are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Is there a division in here yet? Is there a word of the division? No. I mean, it's incredible unity. And this is what he wants us to be. And he's going to give us the power if we want it. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And he's the one who always was the son of perdition. He never stopped being the son of perdition, and that's why he was lost. But now, and that's me speaking, now back to quote, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Union. This is union. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. This is separation from the world and union with Christ and the Father and the Father unified in us. Back to quote, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We have the basis, the same basis, to be one. And so he continues. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Now remember, Jesus said, I am the truth. So they'd be sanctified in him. If all are sanctified in him, how could there be disunity? We're not living up to it. 20. I do not ask on behalf of these, th- these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. This isn't just for the disciples who are about to be apostles. This is for the entire church. Word passed on, passed on, and passed on. 21, that they all may be one. That they all may be one. Even as the Father, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. Now, if that doesn't put pressure on us to be one, I don't know what will. 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. Remember, the world is in view here, so this isn't about some future glory after everything's done. This is about now. This is about right now, and for the past 2,000 years, and for however long until Jesus comes back. Verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may be perfected or made complete in unity. Without unity, there's no completeness. doesn't matter what your specific church, where it's at. World, the world of churches in division is breaking this completeness. Or a body. doesn't matter if you're an ear or a finger or a heart or a lung. You're a part of the body, and the whole body suffers when one part suffers. 
This is the Bible I'm quoting. Verse 23 continues, And love them even as you have loved me. Wow. Um, Should we not receive that love and live accordingly by obedience? 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. That's unity. So that they may see my glory which you have given me and you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is eternal love. And believe, there was no division in it at all. 25. O righteous Father, although, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. There's no division between Father and Son in anything. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. You think God the Father and God the Son doesn't love us perfectly, completely. He wants that love in us right now. And remember this. So much is said in John chapter 17, between the Father and the Son, glorifying the Father and the Son and actually glorifying them in the love that they're sharing with the church. And who's saying this? Who's inspiring this? The Holy Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit make one reference to himself? No. Why? Because he isn't equally God? Because he isn't as much God as Father and Son? Because he isn't the eternal God? You know, throughout all eternity that he's God? Is that no? Of, all of that is true. And yet he's speaking out of humility. He's not present. He's speaking, but he's not present. We don't hear him. We don't see him. But he's there. Uh, Is the church that way? Is the church not present to the point that it just wants the best for all every other part? Do the Pentecosts love the Charismatics that way? Do the Baptists love the Presbyterians that that way? Do the Anglicans love... Any part of the body other than Anglican that way. You know, in my heart of heart, I am just a person and I'm part of this problem. I've been a part of it my, all the, my existence as a born-again believer. Am I sucked into it? Yes. Have I been mostly quiet about it? Yes. Have I even said things in the early days that made me part of it? Yes. I'm guilty. I am absolutely guilty. And I feel guilty. And I'm given this message being a guilty person who just doesn't want to be guilty anymore. I want the church to be one. Shouldn't we want what God wants? Does not God want the church to be one? Are we going to make excuses? Are we going to say that the core issues are the only things that matter? Really, is that what we're going to say? Is that what we're going to propagate? That and dozens of other ways that we just buy into all of this. And we're just, or we buy into it not by being the students of the word that we need to be, to be able to understand the truth that divides us. Everybody's, everyone is wrong in something. And you know what it's going to take to, to make unity in the church? To everyone, for everyone to admit it and break from it and instead go to the truth. Well, the Baptists were about right about this. The Pentecostals were right about that. According to the word, not the doctrines of the Baptists and the Pentecostals and all the rest. Because there are doctrines that they believe, everyone believes wholeheartedly this is the truth, and it's not. And it's not. All of that has to be given up for there to be unity right here and right now so that God will, that the world will back up and go, we need to persecute them to death. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to die for Christ's sake the way he cried for He died for us? Are we willing to go that far? Dear Heavenly Father, this is a message not for a man to preach, but it's placed on us to preach it. Because we're all guilty. We all have in ourselves this element of divisiveness, of, of backbiting, of pride, you know, on the some things, things that only can be corrected by walking in the Spirit, by being filled in the Spirit. Only then can we 
be emptied of these ugly, the ugliness that's in our souls by this person that comes alongside that's not us anymore. True believers are born again. They're regenerate. They're a new creation in Christ. Old things are passing away. Old things are becoming new. This is the work of the Spirit of God in us. May it be to the full. May you come down from heaven and pour yourself out upon the church so that we would humble ourselves, relent of this ignorance and this divisive spirit that we all possess and say, God, help me. I'm sorry. I I repent in dust and ashes. I'm worthless in your sight. You know, once I heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Lord, this is a, a time for unity, not division. This is a time for oneness of the body so that we might all die the death that we're called to. This is a time when the world is raising, rising up, when the devil is taking captive and, and with only the thought to kill and destroy because that's all he knows. He's going to ruin the world. He's going to bring it to ruin. And in that ruining, God's going to be making it new and preparing it for a, a thousand year reign. I give you the praise and the glory for that. The day is coming. We're not giving our lives away forever. We're giving them away to be transformed in an instant, in the blinking of an eye, to be brought into the presence of Christ in fullness, awareness, like we're not now. We're in the dark now. We see through a glass darkly. But then, face to face. And if I die right now, in the next moment, I'll be face to face with Christ. I'm sure I will be wanting to throw myself face down. I will be sure that I will not always hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I will see works going up in smoke. I just don't want any more. Forgive us, Lord, for... Not for being men, but for being sinful men. Bless the hearing of your word to pleasing you. In Jesus' name, amen.